Okay. I know we could do this all day. <laughs> I know we could do this all day. That's why you want to join a community group so you can talk even more afterwards. And also for you newcomers who don't know, we have Oasis Cafe outside and you're, you're more than welcome to get refreshments. It's free, it's lovely, it's wonderful and tasty. So hope you do that too. And uh, those of you who know, we are, oh, all of you are standing, great, okay. <laughs> we are standing for the word of God. Our passage today is from Acts. Chapter 11, verses 19 to 23. Acts chapter 11, verses 19 to 23. Hear the word of God. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. All right. Well, good morning once again. And um, yeah, it's good. As you can see, all different translations, the good ones are the Word of God, right? <laughs> so it's good. It's all good. Well, I'm excited as we uh, continue in uh, the book of Acts and this passage that we just read. And I'm excited to uh, just share with you uh, what the Lord has really um, revealed to me and put on my heart uh, to share. So. With that, I'm going to ask, uh, can we just go to the Lord one more time together and ask the Lord to uh, open his word to our hearts. So please join me in prayer. Father, we uh, praise you. Uh, we thank you. Uh, we Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has truly blessed us uh, in Christ with every spiritual blessing imaginable. And we are so thankful uh, that we've been saved and redeemed, justified, by your grace through Jesus for your glory. And Lord, as we look into this passage now and we open our hearts to your word, I ask for the Spirit of God to take this word and bring about fruit and bring about obedience uh, to your word by your power. Lord, it's not our strength, it's not our abilities that can accomplish what you desire, but it's purely by your mercy. And we ask that your word would go out uh, upon your people now so that your church would be built up, your people built up ultimately for your glory, for what you desire for your people, for all of us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to uh, start this off by just reading a parable for you. And uh, it's a little bit lengthy, but uh, please bear with me and try to follow along in this parable. Um, it's a parable of a lighthouse. On a dangerous sea coast, notorious for shipwrecks, there was a crude little life-saving station. 
Actually, it was merely a hut with only one boat, but the few members kept a constant watch over the turbulent sea. With little thought for themselves, they would go out day and night, tirelessly searching for those in danger as well as the lost. Many lives were saved by this brave band who faithfully worked as a team in and out of the life-saving station. By and by, it became a famous place, and some of those who had been saved, as well as others along the seacoast, wanted to become associated with this little station. Uh, slide, please. They were willing to give their time, energy, and money in support of its objectives. New boats were purchased, new crews were trained, the station, once obscure and crude and virtually insignificant, began to grow. Some of its members were unhappy but the hut was, that the hut was so unattractive and poorly equipped. They felt a more comfortable place should be provided, so emergency cots were replaced with lovely furniture. Rough handmade equipment was discarded and sophisticated classy systems were installed. The hut, of course, had to be torn down to make room for all the additional equipment, furniture, and systems. By the time of its completion, the life-saving station had become a popular gathering place and ob objectives had begun to shift slowly. It was now used as a sort of clubhouse, an attractive building for public gatherings, saving lives, feeding the hungry, strengthening the fearful, and calming the disturbed rarely occurred. Next slide, please. Fewer members were interested in braving the sea on life-saving missions, so they hired professional lifeboat crews to do this work. The original goal of the station wasn't altogether forgotten, however. Life-saving motifs still prevailed in the club's decorations. There was a liturgical lifeboat preserved in the room of sweet memories with soft, indirect lighting, which helped hide the layer of dust upon the once-used vessel. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the boat crews brought in loads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty, some terribly sick and lonely, others were different from the majority of the club members. The beautiful new club suddenly became messy and cluttered. A special committee saw to it the shower was immediately built outside away from the club so victims of the shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there were strong words and angry feelings which resulted in a division among the members. Most of the people wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities and all involvements with shipwreck victims. As you expect, some still insisted on saving lives that this was their primary objective that their only reason for existence was ministering to anyone needing help regardless of their club's beauty or size or decorations. They were voted down and told if they want to save lives of various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast, so they did. As the years passed, the new station experienced the same old challenges. It evolved into another club and yet another life-saving station was begun. History repeats itself, and if you visit the coast today, you'll find a large number of exclusive, impressive clubs along the shoreline owned and operated by slick professionals who have lost all involvement with the saving of lives. As we've been going through the book of Acts, um, this book, as I hope that we have all seen, uh, shows us what God's mission for the church is, and that God's mission for us as a church uh, is to go and save lives, to multiply, to take risks, not to build a monument to ourselves. This is what the book of Acts clearly shows us. And if you look at every church, uh, including our church here at CFC, 
every church at some point began as a church plant, right? Our church, CFC, dating back 55 years now, began as a church as a Bible study of young people, students, young people who came to know Jesus, grew to love Jesus, and then invited others, introduced Jesus to other people, and then they began to grow, and then it began to grow into what we have as CFC. Uh, every church starts off that way as a church plant, but the challenge with any church, right, as it grows and it becomes sort of settled, the challenge is that the institutional aspects of the church eventually overtake the mission of the church. And we kind of lose sight of why we actually existed in the first place. There's a guy named Peter Greer, and he wrote a book called Missional Drift. And he asked this question, every single organization, as he examined a lot of these organizations, and um, YMCA, even like, uh, you know, Harvard, Yale, like these uh, Ivy League schools that every Asian American, you know, dreams to get into or whatever. But these schools, believe it or not, started off as Bible colleges to train uh, men and women to become literate in the scriptures, the word of God, and then to become ministers of God's word. That's how, that was the original mission of Harvard, Yale, Princeton, of all these schools. And Peter Greer then talks about how, over time, um, the institution or organization begins to lose its original focus or mission and, and become something else. Pastor Rick Warren, uh, the pastor of Saddleback Church, he said that churches themselves, every single church, that they tend to lose their sense of purpose and mission. And that's why he says that the vision of the church has to actually be repeated every 45 days. Every 45 days, because that's how long it takes for the church to begin to lose its sense of original mission. And there's this guy named J.D. Greer, uh, but he was a pastor of a church in North Carolina called Summit Church. And the way he puts it is, he says, when churches get big and settled, so to speak, they experience a natural inertia. Within a generation, they move from mission to maintenance, and they go from being reckless in the mission to being comfortable in the institution, to becoming comfortable in the institution. And it becomes about maintaining maybe some of the ministries or policies or uh, the programs and those kind of things, but this sense of zeal for the mission somehow gets clouded, lost in that. The church here at Antioch is a church that was on mission, right? This was a church that, uh, as you see in Scripture, this is a church that, that God used in a very, very special way. Um, this was actually the first church that we see that began to launch into a global missions movement. They were the sending church for Paul and Barnabas to go throughout the Mediterranean region to take the gospel. Uh, this was the kind of church that Antioch was, and it was a very international kind of church. A lot of different kinds of people who comprise this church. And I want us to look at 
this church, what is it that made them so effective for the mission? Why were, why were they able to retain the original mission purpose for, why, for which this church was formed? And so as we look at this, um, look with me at verses 19 and 20. But verse 19, Luke records that now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Sardinia went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. But as you look at this church, you find that persecution did not stop them from spreading the gospel. It did not stop them from spreading the gospel. In the book of Acts, uh, this chapter right here is actually a major turning point. Because here, up until this point, you, find, you hear a lot about the church in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was a good church. It was... Uh, being built up. It was the first church that got started. And, you know, they were growing in the Lord. They were generous. And you see this picture of this church. But they were kind of like this huddled kind of church, safe in Jerusalem. But starting from here in Acts 11, we, we find that the persecution that God allows into the Jerusalem church ended up making this church scattering and then becoming this, all of a sudden, this gospel-sharing, fearlessly on mission with Jesus kind of church. And so Jesus, he actually promised in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and this is the theme verse of Acts, that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This was Jesus' original call to this church in Jerusalem. But I'm sure that as these disciples heard these words of Jesus, um, they could not have imagined how this would actually come about. You know, here we are in Jerusalem. We're going to preach. Okay, I, we're going to preach the gospel here. How are we going to take it to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth? They, they could not imagine how this would become a reality. But in God's plan, God allows his church in Jerusalem to, to grow, to um, enjoy this time of peace to learn to um, enjoy the word of God and fellowship. But then with the, the stoning of Stephen, the persecution that breaks out against the church, God says, okay, that's, that's good. You've had time to grow. You've enjoyed this peace and this safety for a while. But now it's like the Lord telling this church, I'm going to just scatter you. And you're going to start going about. Now, this persecution could have caused this church to just give up. You know, this is, this is too hard, right? This is, um, you know, this is, this is not what I signed up for. But instead of giving up, the persecution actually galvanized this church. And it sprung them into greater action for the Lord. And again, I think that part of the reason why God would allow this persecution against his church was because I think that this church in Jerusalem would have been content 
to stay there had it not been for the persecution. I think they would have been perfectly happy to enjoy good Bible studies and fellowship, uh, the teaching, and to enjoy the community. But in God's sovereign purpose, he knew that this was going to be a mechanism or a way to, to cause his church to springboard them into missional action. It says in verse 29 that they traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. So they, they go out. Um, Phoenicia is present-day, modern-day Lebanon. Uh, others to Cyprus, this island nation about 100 miles off the coast. And others settled in Antioch, um, this modern-day Syria region. So we see that persecution was God's way. He sort of inflicted them into action. But secondly, and this is really key to this movement, to what happened, was that it was a lay-driven movement. A lay-driven movement. Verse 20, Luke says, Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to, the, to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus and I'm going to mention one more verse. If you go earlier to Acts chapter 8, verse 4, Luke mentions that those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now, one thing is very clear, if you look at these verses in 20 and Acts 8, 4, is that these men, these people who went scattered preaching the word, they were not the apostles. Okay, it's talking about just the lay, everyone. The believers, ordinary believers, right? These are the people who took the word about preaching everywhere. And this was a huge key for how this gospel began to go out. It was not a, a reliance on the leadership. There was not a, a reliance on the apostles or uh, the professionals to do the work. Everyone saw it as their responsibility to be a minister and a missionary for the gospel every single believer and this is this is how god has has always used the church throughout if you see any great movement of the gospel it's just ordinary people who love jesus who take the gospel out um you know, when I did this research and when I was looking into the history of the gospel movement in China, for example, the past 60 years has seen probably one of the, the greatest gospel movements in the history of the church in China. And China in 1949 was a country that had 700,000 believers and today, there's all kinds of estimates, but it could be up to 100 million today. It could be 60 million, 120 million. It's hard to define exactly right now. But imagine from 700,000 700, believers to 100 million, 80 million believers today in 60 years. But how did this happen? Was it because all of a sudden there was this influx of these missionaries who just went in there and you know, just started preaching gospel? No. The key turning point in 1949 was 
when communism had taken over the country. And when communism had taken over the country, all the foreign missionaries were expelled out, just kicked out, you're gone. But rather than squelching the movement of the church and the gospel, what ended up happening was that because of that, the 700,000 believers that were there could not rely upon the foreigners to do the work. So they ended up having to be the evangelists and the missionaries, and they were the ones who were taking the gospel throughout the country. And this is the beauty of what, what's been happening right now. As many of you know, in this country, a lot of missionaries are getting kicked out. A lot of the people that I work with or my friends have already been kicked out of the country. Most of them, actually. But um, there's not a sense of alarm, a sense of panic. Why? Because, you know, this, as I see it, is God's timing for to say, hey, there's a new movement where now the, the indigenous, the nationals, they are going to take it to the next level. You know, missionaries, um, they provide a spark plug, they're a catalyst, but they're not meant to be the ones who do that work. They're meant to equip and be the spark plug, but it's the nationals who must carry it on. And I think that's partly what's happening right now in this country. You know, when the church relies on programs, right, or pastors, or um, the church, right, to do the real work of evangelism or ministry, it undercuts God's purposes. It slows it down. Ministry gets slowed down. But when each one of you, when every Christian sees himself as a minister, as a missionary, this is when you see a movement happening. And this may sound very obvious, but in verse 19 and 20, um, it says that they actually spoke the gospel. So in verse 19, it says that they were spreading the word. In verse 20, it says that they were telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Now, what's going on is very, again, it's, it's obvious, but I think it needs to be said that they, they had to use their mouths to utter the words. Um, the gospel is a real message. Romans 10, 14, Paul says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Now, the logic of this is that the gospel must actually be verbalized. It's a message that must be verbalized, proclaimed, because without the proclamation of the gospel, um, people cannot be saved. Now, I say this because I think that it's very, very tempting for us to stop short of actually verbalizing the gospel. Um, this is true internationally as well as here in the United States. When I was in Central Asia, um, in one of these countries in Central Asia, so there's a lot of missionaries from all over the world, and different missionaries have different strategies, and some set up you know, hospitals and schools and NGOs and 
it's their quote platform, right? And you want you you, you do want to establish some sort of identity to be in the country. That's true, and they establish those things. Um, but oftentimes, there was a they, they stopped short of actually preaching the gospel. And um, one of the missionaries of our church that we support here, the missions committee, we had dinner with them about two months ago. They're a missionary that is in one of these Central, Central Asian countries. And I remember the words that you know, he was speaking. Now, he has a platform as well. It's, it's important, right? Um, so they have a platform, and they have, an, they have an NGO, so to speak. But he said that our goal here is we want to proclaim Jesus. They can stone us. They can kill us. But this is why we're here. We're going to freely proclaim Jesus. And that struck me that that's exactly right. Um, holistic ministry is important, right? The fruit of the gospel is orphanages and schools and hospitals and all kinds of things. But unless we actually proclaim the words of Jesus, what is the point? One of the, the missions leaders that um, I was talking to said this, and he said, probably here in the West, the greatest danger in the West is the same. Preach the gospel at all times, but use words if you have to. Now, I think a lot of us are familiar with that phrase. Preach the gospel at all times, use words if you have to. Yes, be a good example. I'm preaching God, I'm demonstrating gospel through my actions, my behavior, my work ethic, all, whatever, all those things, right? But he says that that's actually a real, real hindrance because that becomes then kind of an excuse from actually proclaiming the gospel. Now, we do, we must demonstrate the gospel with the reality of our lives. Absolutely key, important. But one thing I want to challenge, I think, here in the West, and our tendency, my tendency, is that I think we can become... We can sometimes hide behind that. We can say, well, I need to build up my credibility first. I need to build trust. I need to build up the relationship. That's, and then you know what? As I build the relationship, maybe then they'll ask me about Jesus and I can share Jesus with them and all that, right? That's how we imagine things would go. But that's not exactly how things go a lot of times. And we actually have to learn to just take risks to say, to freely share Jesus and to say, this is who I believe and this is who I follow. And to take the risk to say, I don't know how they're going to respond to that. But this is, I'm going to proclaim Jesus out of obedience because I love Jesus. Uh, but it's important that they, they spread the word. They, they, they preach the gospel. Um, and it was everyone's responsibility. Everyone saw to it that this was their role. But the third thing I want to show you is that they went outside their natural social comfort zone or identity. Verse 19, Luke says, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Now, I want you to 
pay close attention to um, Luke and the way he describes it here, but uh, most of the believers who were scattered by this persecution, you know, it's natural. They, uh, these were Jewish people. They were refugees at this point. So it's most comfortable for them to share with fellow Jews as, as exiles or refugees in a foreign, foreign area, right? That's natural. Um, but Luke, the way he emphasizes it is he says, they spread the word only among the Jews. And it's, 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 it's almost as if ne Luke is, is negatively describing that aspect, or as if he's saying it's, it's, it's good, but it was, it was limiting. In verse 20, Luke says, but some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. So these men of Cyprus and Cyrene, um, Cyrene is northern Africa, but they arrive and they are courageously preaching the gospel to Greek-speaking, these Jewish people. Tim Keller calls these evangelists, he calls them mavericks, right? Because they really went out of their natural social identity. John Stott calls them daring spirits. Um, now, up until this point, this is, this is a major observation in Acts because up until this point, we did find that there was preaching to the Gentiles. Uh, Omar, last week, he preached about how Peter did preach to Cornelius, a Gentile. And we find um, Philip the Evangelist, you know, talking uh, to this Ethiopian eunuch. So there was a sharing of the gospel to, uh, to those outside the race. But um, no one had done so intentionally to the mass until this point here in Luke. But as they did so, these people... Cyprus, Cyrene, they broke, broke through a major, major cultural barrier in presenting the gospel. And it implies that as they broke through this barrier, that this was pleasing to the Lord. This is what God intended. Um, what does this look like for us? What does it look like for us as a church, but maybe you and I individually where we're at? So for me, individually, right, um, I live in a neighborhood that right next to us, across from us, is a um, group of Caucasian, uh, unmarried men and women who are living together. That's our neighbor, my neighbor. At the front is a Latino family, and um, you know they've got a very large family up there as well. And then the rest of my driveway easement is um, a mixture of I think Taiwanese and Chinese. But that's that's my neighborhood. And amazingly, in my neighbor in, in this little cul-de-sac area, there's not another Korean American family with three kids who enjoy eating kimchi, right? I don't know why, but there just isn't. Right? Uh, we don't have a whole lot in common, necessarily. Um, 
with some of these families. But I did not choose my neighbors. Um, that is an area that I believe that God has put us into. And the people are very different, but what God has called me to is to love my neighbors, to reach out to them. And so every time when I am outside, I'm very intentional about going up to them and greeting them and making conversation and getting to know them. And I'm getting to know now some of my neighbors and some of the um, they're sharing a little bit more about some of the things that are going on in their lives. But this is very intentional for me to, every time I see, I'm, I'm going to just go out there. I'm just going to like say, hey, how, how's it going? And as I go through my prayer walk um, every morning, I'm praying for all these neighbors. I'm just praying over their homes. I'm praying for my neighbors. I'm praying for the Lord to bless them. I'm praying for opportunities to share the gospel with them. I'm praying for... Um, to build the relationship. I'm praying all kinds of things over my neighbors. But this is very intentional. It's very different, but this is what God has put me into in my immediate circumstance. I'm, I want to ask here at CFC, right, us as a church, um, we are a church of Chinese origin, predominantly Chinese-American culture. And this is a great strength because we're able to reach out to others who are similar in that way. But um, what would it mean for us, maybe as a church, to take steps to break out a little bit more, um, be challenged a little bit more to reach out to all kinds of people? What would that look like? Right? To step out of what maybe is our natural preference and our natural again, comfort zone, and who we maybe gravitate towards, but to say, you know, the Lord, I believe it's pleasing to the Lord for me to step out, to take the gospel to all, as Omar Rodriguez said last Sunday. What's that going to look like? To love people who are different, very different from me. I think this will be a good test for how we are understanding God's heart and God's mission and his love for all peoples. His desire to see the gospel from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so one thing <laughs> that the pastoral staff, we've talked about now for actually months, uh, but this is just a small, small little step, okay? And it's got to it's start even with these small little steps here, is this. Look, look around, right? As you can see, Everyone's very spread out. Okay? So we all have our favorite seats, our favorite pew, right? Our favorite angle of looking at the slides or whatever, right? We all like kind of, oh well, yeah, this is where I feel comfortable, okay? Well, I hope you see in the book of Acts that God's desire is not for our comfort, right? <laughs> and God's desire is that we learn to reach out, even within us here, to break down those barriers as much as we can and it's got to start in the house first, right? As we learn to do that, then we can, we can do so more into the community as well, into our neighborhoods, our workplaces, wherever. So I'm going to make you all very uncomfortable right now, okay? But 
because I love you and the Lord loves you. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to ask everyone, please stand up. Ooh, this is uncomfortable. All right, everyone stand up. All right. Ooh, you're feeling that. I know. I, I know. I can feel it from you guys. All right, everyone stand up. No, this is not the benediction, okay? Uh, you don't get, get, get out this soon, okay? But what I'd like you to do is this. We're spread out. But how much better if we look, you know, if we're next to each other, right? So I'm going to ask the people in the center, or no, not center, in the side aisles to now find a seat here in the middle two rows. There's plenty of seats. Tim is looking for neighbors right now to sit next to you. He's been by himself this whole service. I can feel the loneliness. And I'm going to ask everyone to go and move towards the center aisles. That's right. Wow, this is good. Woo! I, sh I wish I, I should film this and post it on Facebook. Look at what our church is doing. Oh, look at that. This is beautiful. Wow. In fact, um... all right, say cheese, everyone. <laughs> this is so good. All right, awesome. All right. Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much. You took up, that felt uncomfortable, I'm sure, yes? But doesn't it feel nice that, this looks nice, that this looks more like a church family that's not so scattered. All right. We should sing Kumbaya. Um, <laughs> take each other's hands. All right. Now, you may be seated. You may be seated. All right. All right, now, that is a step, okay? That's a step towards breaking down barriers, amen? <laughs> amen. All right. Um, this is good. And actually, from now on, whoa, this looks so much better. It looks like a real trust family now. Okay, uh, from now on, so every Sunday, um, yes, this is meant to be a permanent thing, but every Sunday, we... We want everyone to sit in the middle. Why? Because it's got to start with us first. Let's learn to break down barriers, right? Let's learn to sit next to people and say, hey, I want to get to know you. Uh, I want to, like, really reach out to you. And um, so turn to your neighbor and say, I want to get to know you, and I love you. <laughs> All right. And we'll have the people at the top come down next week, okay? <laughs> but, yeah, this is, you know, this is what we want to see happen. And um, this, again, it's learning to take these steps, right? These little steps uh, within our community and, um, and into the neighborhood. But... We need to, uh, I need to actually preach this passage, okay? So let me get, <laughs> I'm going to finish off. The last thing I just want to share with you is this. At the end, why am I asking, well, not, not me, but why would you do this? Why? Verse 22, and this is really important. 
Um, news of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. True to the Lord with all their hearts. What's going to enable you? What, what's going what's to drive you to do, to reach out to all kinds of people? It's not me, right? It's not the leadership. No amount of the pastor or the leadership telling you to do something is going to make you do it. You know that by now. What's going to make you do it is this. There's only one true motive because you're passionate about Jesus. Zeal flowed out of a supreme love for the Lord. This concluding part of this passage here is very simple, that they were resolute of heart. They were true to the Lord. Um, they remained steady, dedicated to the Lord. This was they put Christ always before them. And you know what? If you are passionate about Jesus, if you're truly passionate about Jesus, won't you naturally, won't it become more natural? It'll be challenging still, but wouldn't it be much more natural? Why? Because you're dedicated, steadfast to the Lord. And that's really what it comes down to. Do you want to glorify God? Do you want your life to be used in a way that, that maximizes that, that, that proclaims the beauty of Jesus. It says, Jesus, you are, you are the most magnificent, the most amazing, the most beautiful person in my life. And because you are worth it, you are the most beautiful person, I want to take risks and I want to be on mission because it's about proclaiming the greatness of Jesus. My heart is steadfast upon you, Lord. And this, more than anything else, right? It's not me. It's not the church telling you to do it. It's not the leadership. It's the word of God. It's Jesus. It's being steadfast upon him. So I'm going to invite the praise team to just come up. And let's just close off in one uh, last song. And um, I'm going to ask everyone to just stand up. And um, let's sing this to the Lord uh, from our hearts. Uh, let's seek to really glorify him and just say, Jesus, uh, let your glory fall. Let your glory fall. I want to glorify you with my heart, with my life. I want, we want our church to glorify you. And let's sing to the Lord and tell Jesus that he is truly the greatest person. All right. I think we're good. All right.